will be, um, Lord willing, beginning, I guess it'll be January 14th or so, uh, the first Sunday of the year, we'll observe the Lord's table together, and uh, it'll be focused on that, so January 14th or so. All right, well, this evening, uh, we're going to continue. We've been in a series on um, Sunday evenings that I've entitled Humanity, Creation to Restoration. And it's a series that really has to do with uh, ourselves in regard to what does the Bible tell us about ourselves. And we've kind of asked the question, who are you? Um, According to the scripture, according to a biblical worldview, who are you? Not just you as an individual, but you as a human being. Who are you? And so we've covered some ground in the last several weeks, and and tonight I want to get to a question that's often perplexing. Uh, But let's just recover a little bit of where we've been. We've asked this question, who are you? We've noted three things so far. You're a direct creation of God. You're not an accident. Um, When you read the creation account, God speaks everything into existence. But when it comes to mankind, there's a personal touch. God forms out of the dust of the ground. He breathes the breath of life. It's it's a personal act, direct creation of God, indicating human significance in creation. And you're created in God's image. You were created to reflect God in some way, that people would look at you and see something about God. But last time we noted that we are also fallen creatures. None of us do that perfectly. And it's because of the fall. Tonight I want to look a little bit further at that concept. What happened at the fall of man? What was the essence of this fall into sin? Well, let me illustrate it this way. Do you recognize that? What is that? If you go to our National Archive in in Washington, D.C., this is actually preserved and behind glass, and it's it's held up in, in esteem of our nation. It's a part of our national psyche and history and archive because this is a declaration of independence. And it was reflective of the decision of our nation to rebel and rule over ourselves instead of being ruled by another nation. It was really in response to an oppressive power that seemed to be overstretching their authority, overstating their authority. And so you have this declaration of independence, and we as proud Americans say, yeah, that's us. We declared our independence. Well, do you realize that in the book of Genesis, in chapter 3, that is how we fell by a declaration of independence. However, what makes it most egregious is that we, in Adam, were not declaring independence from an oppressive overlord, but from a good, benevolent, kind creator. And so when we fell, we fell by believing that we were better off ruling ourselves than to be ruled by God. 
And this really was the essence of the fall of man, that we fell by believing the lie that we are better off living independent of God. And when you think about the fall, we think about the fruit and, and all of that that transpired, but at its root is this. It's a rebellion. I don't want to image God. I want to be God. And that was the essence of our fall. And that had a profound effect in that fall. We looked at these effects of the fall of mankind, and one of the effects uh, was this. It's, it's inversion, we would call it. When you read of Genesis chapter 3 and the fall, you notice that, that back in Genesis chapter 2, there was kind of this order that God had put together, and it was, was God who created man uh, and, and mankind in his image, male and female, and then he made the woman from the man, and man and woman were to rule over creation. There's kind of this order. It's God, man, and woman, and then creation. And at the fall, you find the inversion of that order. It's the creature, Satan, but he's in the form of a serpent, and he comes to the woman. And the woman listens to the creature. And in turn, the man listens to his wife. And in turn, Adam doesn't listen to God, but rebels against him. And so you can see that, that at the fall, it was like this inversion of the order. God had ordained it one way. And what Satan did was crept in and said, well, actually, it's going to work better the other way. And as a result of that, God enacted a curse upon the world, upon humanity, and, and each of those specific orders. And in fact, when, when you look at the curse and how it plays out in Genesis chapter 3, it's because of this inversion, the frustration that will be had among those varying relationships. For instance, this earth that was to respond to mankind's touch as its rightful Lord, as it were, will now be riddled with thistles and there will be pain and sorrow and sweat that the man has to engage in just to overcome this curse. There would be harshness and trouble in relationship between husband and wife, men and women. And it would demonstrate itself primarily in blame shifting. That's where it comes out in Genesis 3. But, but God says that relationship is going to be affected because of this inversion of the order of the fall. And there was this struggle now between humanity and God himself and that we were to live under the gracious rule of God in, in loving obedience to him. But now that would be fractured. And although we maintain the image of God, there's frustration in that we, we don't live it out perfectly and in fact we see it marred greatly in others, even as we interact with them. And our response to God now is not one of openness and welcomeness, but it's like Adam and Eve of hiding and shame because we know that we're fallen. So this is the effect of the fall of man and what has happened in relationships. But what about that image of God? And I want you to take your Bible and go to Genesis chapter 5. What about this image of God and man? What happened to that after the fall? 
Well, Genesis 5, verse 1, we're introduced to a new section in the book. It says, this is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in what? The likeness of God. And these terms, likeness and image, are used interchangeably. So basically he's saying God created Adam in his image. All right? Look at verse 2. Male and female, he created them, and he blessed them and named them man when they were created. And when Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own what? Likeness after his image and named him Seth. Now, if Adam fathers a son in his own likeness, and we're told at the beginning that Adam was made in the likeness of God, what happens to the image? It's passed on, right? The biblical writer is telling us that that image is not erased after the fall. It's marred, but it's still passed on in some degree. You see that? And that leads us to an important question. And I just want to ask the question this way. Can people who are fallen do good? If we are in Adam and we fell in Adam, and I'm thinking in terms of non-believing people that are fallen, can they do good? Let me ask this another way. Have you or are you confused by the goodness of bad people? What do I mean by that? Well, do you know of any unbelieving people who maybe are nicer than even some Christians you know? They're, they're generous. They're hardworking. They strive to be ethical. They appear to be servant-hearted to some degree. And are you ever confused by that? I mean, these are fallen people. Well, if you were raised in a Christian home, which I would never say is a bad thing, but if you were raised in a very careful Christian home, oftentimes there tends to be this, this protection from, from outward influences, which is a good thing. But sometimes Christian young people growing up in homes like that, when they get a little bit older, they, ha they have this perception of people that are outside the church that they're all selfish and greedy and immoral. And when they start bumping into people who don't even profess to believe in God, who seem kind and caring and helpful, it's confusing. That's not what I expected. How does that happen? I mean, it's true that even, even unsaved sinners, people who might be involved in a lifestyle of sin, still somehow seem to do good things. For instance... Uh, I mentioned before a, a lady by the name of Rosaria Butterfield, and she 
was um, a lesbian living with her partner, and uh, she was a professor at Syracuse University, and she writes a book and tells about her coming to Christ. But she says before she came to Christ, it was actually at the point in which all these things were going on in her life, she wrote this about her and her partner. She said, my partner T ran a business. Uh, she rehabilitated abused and abandoned golden retrievers. She said, our household was a hub of intellectual and activist work. We supported AIDS health, children's literacy, disability activism. She said, I was a coordinator of the welcoming committee at our Unitarian Church. She said, people might look at us outside of our lifestyle and say, these are, these are good people. They're doing good things. In fact, she said it was the Christian community to me that appeared to be exclusive, judgmental, scornful, and divisive. Well, does that confuse you? Can bad people do good things? How bad can these good people really be? Let me put it to you on a more personal level. Is the non-believing doctor who volunteers to help at-risk people in foreign countries bad? Are they fallen? Is the non-believing social worker who helps abuse victims a bad person, a fallen person? Is your non-believing neighbor who blows the heavy snow from your driveway during a blizzard a bad person? Well, does the Bible answer this question? I think it does. And we're going to look at some passages tonight, but let me just begin this way, that Jesus acknowledges that fallen people can do good things. Let me show you this. In Luke chapter 6, in verse 32, Jesus said this, If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. Sinners do the same what? They do good to those who do good to them. So in one way, Jesus acknowledges Bad people can do good. But our question goes beyond that. Are non-Christians capable of doing good things that really matter before God? Well, in order to answer this question, I want you to go to Romans chapter 3. And we'll spend the majority of our time here in the first three chapters of Romans. you know Romans at all, the first three chapters are spent, uh, Paul is like arguing a case. It's almost like he's a trial lawyer. And he is, is arguing to bring about a, a conviction, a condemnation, as it were. And we're jumping in here in Romans chapter 3, where he's coming to the conclusion of that, and he is bringing about the conviction of what he's argued for. That's why verse 9, he begins this way. What then? And this is like a conclusion. He says, I've argued all of this, so now what is the logical conclusion to what he has been arguing? 
Well, what has he argued? In Genesis chapter 1, he argued that the, the pagan people have rejected the revelation of God in creation, and they've worshipped the creature rather than the creator, and therefore they are under the wrath of God. Beginning in chapter 2, he has argued that Jewish people who have actually had the law of God but have failed to keep the law of God, they are no better off. They are under the same kind of condemnation. That's why he says now in Romans chapter 3 and verse 9, what then, are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. And now I want you to note the specific charge that Paul lays to all humanity. Verse 9 in the middle. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are what? Are what? Okay, very important wording here. We are all sinners. What does it say? We are all under sin. There's those prepositions again. Why is that important? What Paul is getting at in his conclusion to this argument is not just that we all commit specific acts of sin. That's true. But he's saying the charge is actually this. We are all ruled by sin. We are, we are under its dominion, as it were. And he's speaking of, of fallen people, that, that this is the primary charge our master is sin, and that's our greatest problem. It's as if sin is a ruling power over people, and you know it rules over them because it manifests itself in how they live. Now, he's going to go on, and he's going to give evidence for this charge, and he does so by giving quotations. Look in your Bible, verse the end of verse 10, and uh, 10 begins, as it is written, and, and you have all these quotations. And then he's going to give the implications beginning in verse 19. But just notice these quotations. Look at verse 10. These quotations substantiate this charge that we're all under sin. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside altogether. They become worthless. No one does good, not even one. What is the repeated refrain of that? No one, not even one, all. And by using these quotes, Paul is saying this is a universal problem. Everybody's under the dominion of sin. Nobody escapes this, Jew or Gentile. This is the problem. And then he goes on to speak of kinds of sin that manifest that. How do you know that? Look at verse 13. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. What specific area does he target to say this demonstrates that we are all ruled by sin? What is it? Throat, mouth, lips. What is it? Our speech. He says, just think about your speech. It reveals what rules your heart. 
And then the other thing he points out is this. Look at verse 15. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. The kinds of sins he focuses on are sins of speech that reveal what's in our heart, and sins of violence or disunity that reveals our motives. And he says, all these things are governed by sin. Your mouth, your lips, your feet. You're governed by sin, and that is the charge against humanity. And therefore, he brings us to this conclusion, verse 18. There is no, what? Fear of God before their eyes. What is the fear of God? The fear of God is the acknowledgement of God's existence. It's an awareness of God, that there is a God, and because He is God and I am not, there should be a proper reverence or living under His realm or, or under His authority, as it were. This is the fear of God. And, and Paul writes and he says, here's the condemnation. We're all under sin, and because that is the case, we have no fear of God. We push Him out of the picture. There's no acknowledgement that God is God. And this is the charge against humanity. Those are the quotations. Notice the implications of this charge. Look at verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Here's the implication. Nobody does what's righteous, therefore everybody is justly under God's wrath, and nobody will stand before God and say, but look at all the good I did. Because the fact is, everybody is under or ruled by sins. In fact, a Jewish person might say, well, what about my good deeds? And that's why he includes verse 20, and he says, even by the works of the law, you won't be justified. In fact, just try to keep that law, and you'll see that you are ruled by sin. That was the point of it. So despite any appearance to the contrary, there is no one who from their heart does what is right. No one will be able to stand before God and justify themselves on the basis of the works that they're doing apart from Christ. They're under God's wrath. Now, let me take you back to our original question. If this is the conclusion that Romans gives us, how is it just that we would say, but you have bad people doing good things? Are they condemned? What, what we're saying and what Paul is saying in Romans chapter 3 is this. Some of the nicest people you know who do not know Christ as Savior are under God's wrath and will face that. Is that fair? Is that right? Back to the neighbor who blows your driveway in a heavy storm? The doctor who cares for you? The nurse who shows compassion at your bedside when you're ill. 
How do we answer these questions? How do we answer these charges? There's two things I want to give you tonight. Number one, we fail to understand sin from God's point of view. From our point of view, we often view sin as behavior. Do this, don't do this. If I do this and don't do this, keep these do's and don'ts, I'm fine in my behavior, and sin becomes very behavioristic. Because the Bible does speak about sinful behavior. Don't lie. So we fail to understand sin from God's point of view because we think of it purely as behavioristic. And secondly, we fail to understand sin from God's point of view because we swim in it. And here's what I mean. I've given this illustration before, right? Fish discover water last, right? And, and the reason that fish don't think about water is because that's their environment and that's where they are and that's what they do. And because we live as sinful people in a sinful world and it's our environment, we use language like, well, it's not that bad. Or, or can this really be that bad? And we tend to minimize it. But we're helped in Romans chapter 1, if you'll go back there, because Romans chapter 1 actually helps us to view sin rightly. It gets us out of, of behaviorism, and it shows us where that behavior stems from. In fact, Romans chapter 1 reminds us very much of what happened in Genesis chapter 3 in our fall. We're told in verse 18 of Genesis 1 that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. What truth do they suppress? Verse 19, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. These people holding down the truth about God are without excuse. Verse 21, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Basically, in a nutshell, here is what Romans 1 is teaching us about sin. Sin begins with a treasonous attempt to overthrow the rightful rule of God. What it tells us is people can look at creation and know there is a God and I'm accountable to Him but because we're under sin, people hold that truth down like trying to hold a balloon under water. And they want to forget about that. And it says they know this about God, but they're suppressing that truth because they don't want to honor Him as God. They don't want to give Him His proper place, although it's written in the stars. And because that is the case, he'll go on and he'll talk about behaviorism and behavioristic sins. But notice he begins with this idea of a treasonous rebellion against God leads that way. Where people take God out of the picture and now they behave in ways that are certainly out of step with God's will. But he says it begins because we are all under sin. 
ruled by sin, which in our heart is treason against God. We don't want to image God, remember? We want to be God. And this is what happened in Genesis chapter 3. And that's why we say it this way. Paul says, here's the problem. We don't want to image God as we were made. We want to be God. And so our race suppresses this truth about God. Some go as far as saying he doesn't even exist. And at the heart of sin is its refusal to acknowledge God as God. Remember Romans 3.18, there is no fear of God before their eyes. Now, When this happens, and someone refuses to acknowledge God as God, is that so bad? I mean, it's just a choice that they make, right? Well, let me ask you, what is the greatest commandment? It's not a trick question. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. Right? If you're going to have commandments and Jesus himself quantifies these things and says there is a greatest. And this is the greatest commandment. Okay, so what would it mean to violate the greatest commandment? To the point where you would even say, there is no God. Love him. I don't even think he exists. I refuse to fear him. I refuse to give him his proper place and acknowledgement. Now stick with me. I'm going somewhere with this. The reason Romans 1 is helpful is it does this. It gets behind the behaviors of sinful behavior to what drives us or motivates us. What's really in our heart is this rebellion that's characteristic of humanity. And so let's answer the question this way. Let's take our non-Christian social worker who is doing something good in trying to help people in very difficult scenarios of life. Yes, she's helping and trying to do what is good. Why does she do it? What's the drive? What's the heart motivation? Furthermore, does this non-Christian social worker even recognize that this desire within her to help people in very difficult situations, that that desire in itself doesn't stem from her own good nature, but that desire to help others, even love others, is a result of being made in whose image? In God's image. Would she acknowledge that? To not acknowledge that is the ultimate fault of being under sin. Here's how this works. Just the other day, uh, it was actually it was quite some time ago, but one of our neighbors here um, on the church property came over, and, and I was showing him around 
the building, and I just wanted to look in, and, and we're always trying to be very kind to our neighbors. Got into a conversation with him about the gospel, and was really trying to share the gospel with him, and, and he kept coming back to this notion, saying, you know what? I know what you believe in the Bible, that people are bad. And he said, but that's not true of me. He said, I'm really a good person. And he started listing all the ways that he'd help people in really tangible, good ways. And he said, I am this good person, and I do these good things, and, and you can believe what you want to believe, but I'm not in that category. This is goodness in me. As I sat there and thought about that and thought about that later, really what that man was doing was saying this. I have a good nature, and it stems just because I am different than everybody else or a lot of the people that you meet. And therefore, praise should go to me because of my goodness. Whereas, what should the response be? Do you know why the man was doing good? Whose image is he made in? He's made in God's image. And when he does that, it's just a reflection that the image is marred, yes, but it's still there. And any goodness that comes about from the heart and pure motive to want to do what is right that's God's common grace to humanity. And all human beings should acknowledge that, but not all do. Right? Do you know why? Because humanity is under sin, like holding that water balloon down, uh, that, that balloon under water, and trying to suppress this truth. They don't want to acknowledge God, there's no fear of God before their eyes. And that, friends, is the greatest sin. This is how bad a good person can be. Where they would actually do something good and displace the Creator in seeking their own glory for it. Perhaps this will help. There was a man who gave an illustration of this, and, and he mentioned, think of, think of a ship, think of a pirate ship. No, I mean, it's, not a, it's not a pirate ship. Think of just a ship, and you have a captain on the ship, and there's a mutiny on the ship. And some of the shipmates get together, and they say, let's overthrow the captain and his crew. And they do so, and they mutiny, and they stop by a near island, and they throw the captain off and his crew, and, and they take that ship, and they sail the high waters, and all the cargo in the ship they're claiming is their own, and they're making plans to how they're going to, to make this voyage prosperous for them all. But while they're sailing on this ship, certain things happen. People get sick. There's, there's incidents that occur, and, and what they do is they help each other on this ship. They help those that are sick and weak, and, and they all pull their part in this voyage, and, 
and they're all doing their jobs and they're working hard so that the voyage is, is going forth and, and they're all participating in this. And, and if you were to, to look at the ship just in its snapshot, you would say this is a, a hardworking crew on this voyage. These are good people, right? Doing good things, working hard. But what's the problem? The whole voyage is one of mutiny. The whole pretense of the thing is never acknowledging the rightful captain of the ship. And therefore, the whole pretense of it is under rebellion. And this is how we see in the earth that, that people do good things and they, they work hard and they're industrious and, and even kind in some ways and all of that reflects the image of God properly. But will they acknowledge that? Because their whole life is lived in mutiny of the rightful creator. And even out of the goodness of their heart, when they do things that are full of compassion and grace, it's to their own praise. Because I'm not like this other person that is mean and nasty. I'm something better. Never acknowledging that actually I have a benevolent creator and he's made me to reflect him in this way. Does that make sense? You know, people wrestle with this question today. There's a man by the name of Dan Barker, and he wrote a book entitled, listen to this, The Good Atheist, Living a Purpose-Filled Life Without God. And what he's getting at in this book is he's saying, you don't have to have God in the picture to live a good life and do good things. And he's dealing with our question tonight, right? If, if, if there's no God, then we can live as we want, but let's be good people to one another. And what he says is this book will help you understand and appreciate why freely choosing to help and cooperate with others is the true path to finding purpose. He says, in this book, The Good Atheist, it includes inspiring biographies of humanity's true heroes, men and women who did not waste their lives as slaves to a God, but rather found purpose in enhancing life on this earth for all of us. See what he's saying? Here's the ultimate picture of the ship. He's saying, let's acknowledge we can do good just because we're good people. It has nothing to do with God, so let's get him out of the picture. And the Bible says, that's right. We're all under sin. And although it's written in the stars and it's written on our hearts that there is a good God, we want to write him out of the page because humanity is in mutiny of its creator. So what does this mean for us? Two things here. Number one, we should recognize the image of God in fallen people. And even if they don't acknowledge this, when, when non-believing people do good and good things you should acknowledge it and say, that is God's image and that is common grace. Thank God for that. 
Even though they might want to praise themselves for that, you can say that is an image bearer of God doing good. Thank God the image is marred, but it's not erased. God's image can be seen in other people, even if they don't acknowledge it. The skilled musician, the brilliant scientist, the compassionate nurse all teach about God when they do good things and image God because the image remains. And so let's not be confused by that. Let's acknowledge that the image is still there. And we can praise God for that goodness. But secondly, most importantly, this is why we desperately need the righteousness of God. And the righteousness of God, according to the book of Romans, comes only through faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is our obligation and our privilege to properly image God. That's what we were made to do. Because we don't, we're unrighteous. We don't fulfill that obligation. But through faith in the gospel of Christ, we are reinstated and found righteous in Him, being changed into His image. And when that happens and we understand that we as image bearers fell, we do not fulfill the righteousness of God, but through faith in Christ and the gospel, we are being changed into his image, and this is all of God, it brings us to this ultimate conclusion. Romans 11, Paul says, For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. This is the right response of an image bearer. It's not about me. Even these good things, they don't come from me. They're from him. And they're enacted through him. And it's all going back to him, to his praise, forever. When we understand the righteousness of God in that way, that is the right response to the gospel. Understanding the true nature of our fallenness, we are under sin, magnifies the mercy and grace of God and brings him the glory that he deserves in the gospel. This is our fallenness, but it is God's mercy and restoration for his glory. So can bad people do good things? Yes, they can do good things. But what's the heart under that? Do they acknowledge God in that? Are they living as they should in that way? That's the fall of humanity. 